Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for that intro, and good afternoon, Bridge. Yeah, we're going to get into it. We're going to definitely get into it. Uh, we're excited to be here, and uh, for those that don't know much about how a testimony service works, it's always good to start off with something like this, giving honor to God, who's first in my life, to my pastor, James T. Roberson III, and to the church, the good citizens at the Bridge Church. So, you know, you can practice on that for a couple of weeks, and by the time we get started, you'll be up to speed, but I'm looking forward Anybody else looking forward to the seven years? Yeah, yeah, I know I am. Well, uh, we just finished our Song of Solomon series about, yes, turn up for that. It's on love, relationships, and marriage, incredible series. I encourage you to go check it out on um, whatever you prefer, YouTube, our podcast. But we're starting a new series today. And But before we jump into it, I wanted to make a quick note, kind of like a plug as a teaching pastor, because there's a method to the madness of us going through books of the Bible. And that method is we believe that God has a lot to teach us from his revelation. And we believe that in order to increase our cultural literacy, we have to increase our biblical literacy. Like, in in other words, in order for us to really understand and be able to diagnose what's happening in our world around us and respond in a biblically faithful way, we need to be people of the book who saturate themselves and their minds in this book. And so we are intentionally creating opportunities for all of us to get ourselves and our minds wrapped around not just a verse here or there anecdotally, although there are times for themes, but in a systemic way, a systematic way to kind of think through the whole story of what God is telling in his word. And there's nothing like doing that with the concept of context. Amen. But I also need to let you know that it's a pretty extreme turn what we're about to go from Song of Solomon to the book of Esther. It would be kind of like, if Song of Solomon is like love and basketball, some of y'all remember that movie, Sanaa Lathan and Omar, right? Esther is like love and hip hop (laughs) meets the Real Housewives. Like, it's a totally different context and situation. And it takes place in a totally different time period. Solomon represents the apex of the kingdom of Israel. He was the third king, you know, David's son. And it was the, the greatest period of strength. They had their temple and worship, and that happens in about 930 B.C. Until about 930 B.C. when his sons come and mess it up and the kingdom splits. Another story for another day. The story that we're looking at today takes place about 486 B.C. It's about 450 years later. And whereas Song of Solomon, the the setting is is Jerusalem and, and, and Israel 
It, which, which is significant because it was it, Jerusalem is the city of David, of promise. It's, it's where God chose to specifically and intentionally reveal himself to his people, where his temple, his, his, his iconic temple, which was going to be a conduit for his presence, was going to be. And the idea of establishing himself through the people of Israel in the town of Jerusalem, in the nation in the kingdom of Israel was to give a visual representation to the world of what it was supposed to be like to live your life surrendered to God. That was the plan. That was the idea. It wasn't so much about them. It was always about a global picture so that people could see the visual image of what it looked like for people to be committed to God and as a result, align themselves. And in that context, Song of Solomon topped the charts in Jerusalem. But 450 years later, that song was long forgotten. We now find ourselves with a group of people, a small remnant in Persia, which is where we're going to be double-clicking, in exile. Now, the exile is basically what happened. Remember that visual picture that Israel was supposed to be of righteousness and of justice to the world? Well, it falls completely apart because people continue to worship other idols. Sadly, Solomon led the charge. And after that, his sons and their sons and continue on, committed the dual crimes that were the exact opposite of righteousness and justice, idolatry and injustice. And what does God do when all of a sudden the people in the place that was supposed to represent the visual representation of what his kingdom was like actually turns that on its head and become the very opposite of what it's supposed to be? He said, y'all got to go. I can't just, I'm not going to pick favorites. And just because your great granddaddies worship me, that now that gives you access by way of seniority or by way of legacy. See, God don't work that way. He does not have grandkids. He only has children who decide to serve him. And so there's this reversal that happens in the exile. It's hard to actually describe how much of a disaster this is for the people of Israel. Now, instead of having a temple, it is destroyed. Now, instead of having a city that was supposed to be this representation of the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, now they're scattered. And now under rulers who worship other gods... Now they find themselves in another city, not Jerusalem, but Susa. And I wanted to give you this picture visually so you can see where this is on the map. Because these are real places. Sometimes we read the Bible and we forget that this is like real. Like this happened in history. Like the people involved actually existed. And so Jerusalem and Judah's way bordering Egypt on the other side of the Arabian desert. First they get sent to ancient Babylon. Then the Babylonians who took them over get taken over themselves by another group. And so then they got to go further east to another city, Susa of Persia. Now, just to give you a, a mental picture of how far this was, the, the trek would have been a thousand miles by foot, which would be similar to trying to walk from New York City to Mississippi. Yeah, now that hit different, right? Try to try to break it down for you. And the culture was about as vastly different as well. 
So some, like Esther and the folks, they struggle with this context. Can you imagine? You're the people of God who believe that God promised to your ancestors that he was sending you to the land of promise, that the nations would be blessed by you and call you blessed. And now, centuries later, the temple is gone and destroyed. The city is. People have been slaughtered, scattered to the diaspora, and enslaved. Your cultural identity and your language has been stripped from you. And you're forced to learn the way of your oppressors. Now, for some of that, some of y'all are like, that kind of sounds familiar. A couple years ago, we acknowledged the 400 years since the first slaves were brought over into the United States. And in a similar pattern of stripping away from people's culture, enslaving, slaughtering, changing language and names, that those type of things have happened. And we can also see the ripple effects and the repercussions of what that, ha- what that means. So they had to struggle with this question. Did God forget his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why are the wicked doing so well and God's people struggling? And that's why this text is so critical for us today. Now, there are two main people in the story of Esther, in the book of Esther, Esther and Mordecai, who are two Jews and living in a hostile kingdom. It's similar to, I kind of call it, and this is why people say that the the time of Esther in the exile is very, is the most similar to the time that we're living in now. This is how Karen Job, who uh, wrote a um, commentary on the book of Esther, this is how she put it. She says, for we live like Esther and Mordecai in a completely pagan world. Like the Jews of Persia, we have no earthly king, no earthly promise, prophet, and no earthly kingdom. Like them, we live in an age where we cannot depend on miracles. You see, there was a time when it was on and popping with the miracles and the prophets and, you know, Elijah and Elisha. You want to ever read that series, that moment in time, you're like, man, God was moving all over the place. This is a time period where they're like, that's not the norm. Not to say that it doesn't happen and it can't happen, but that's not the norm of how God is moving at this time. And so Esther is written for those who are struggling with these type of questions. When the world is falling apart, is God present or is he absent? Is God speaking even when he's silent? Did God forget us? Did he forget? If he's a king, where is his kingdom? That's essentially what they were struggling with. And I don't know about you, but I know I've struggled with some of those same questions. When I live and look and and, and live in a world in which it almost seems like sport to mock God and those who are intent on idolatry or injustice seem to prosper and those who are trying to resist that seem to struggle. Anybody else have felt that tension before? Now, here's the interesting thing. Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God by name, but we can see God is clearly moving. And that's a word in and of itself. It kind of answers that question about, well, if he's silent, is he still speaking? Because, see, this is where we have to learn the difference and see the difference between coincidence versus providence. You know, coincidence, like you you get to work and, and, and somebody is wearing the same thing that you're wearing. And you go, oh, wow, that's an unfortunate coincidence. <laughs> but 
as we were singing the song that we were singing earlier, providence actually is a different interpretation of our life's events. Right? When we were singing, all, I, I believe all things are working. I believe all things are moving for the, for the good. Like that there's a plan, even if I can't see the plan that is being executed. And I can testify to this. We're going to start testimony service a little early, if y'all don't mind. You see, because see, I didn't grow up in church. And, uh, and, and, and God didn't start getting my attention until my senior year in high school. And I started to be interested in the things of God because I realized I was empty in myself. That's a whole other story. But I started going to, I was, I was invited to a, to a friend's church. And I, I live in, I'm from Germantown in that, that section of Philadelphia. And this was in southwest Philadelphia, which is way on the other side of town. And I'd never been there. And I got lost. Wandered around for about an hour. Finally gave up. It was hot summer day, and for some reason, I guess I was just kind of disoriented. I took like the long way to get back to the subway. And when I did, I find myself all the way from the 50s, like 58th Street, all the way to 40th Street, and I see this church in front of me. Someone invites me in. I'm like, well, <laughs> why not? I walk in, and I experience God's presence like I never did in my entire life. Ended up giving my life to Christ at that church, finding out it was one block away from my dorm all four years at college. Then I would later meet someone named Tamika who will become my wife. <laughs> Providence or coincidence? See, I believe God was moving through my uh, difficulties and challenges with being able to be directionally oriented in order to lead me right where he wanted me to go. And God is telling that story in each and every one of our lives. Whether we can see it or not, God is moving. This is the context for Esther. The book of Esther is like a lighthouse in a fog at midnight for those who feel lost at sea. There is a God still there. He's still speaking even when it feels like there's silence. In fact, when God steps back, in silence, we can see the ugliness of the world. Sometimes we don't really believe it's as bad, like when it says that we're, we're sinful, that, that, that man is depraved, like we don't really believe that. And then God says, all right, check it out for a second. Check out 2020. So today as we examine the first chapter, we're setting the stage for the rest of the book. So we're, we're even before we meet the principal character, Esther and Mordecai, they're going to show up in chapter two, but the author paints a picture of the ugliness amidst the most lavish and decadent palace in the kingdom. And because it's a story meant to be listened to, I'm going to read it in its entirety in this chapter so that we can get the sense of the nuance of it and not just break down. So Esther is between Nehemiah and Job in the Old Testament, right before Psalm, if you're looking um, and I'll just read. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, your version might use his other name, Xerxes, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. 
And when they were com- those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyria, uh, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Azuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, not going to have to interpret that too much, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Azuaris, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shetha, Abmatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mekumin, Mekmukin, the, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Azuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti wrong, done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in the provinces of King Azuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say King Azuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be before him, and she did not come. (laughs) This very day, the noble women of Persia and media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. All right, last part. (laughs) If it please the king. Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Azuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. The advice pleased the king, and the princes and the king did as Mamukin promised. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province, in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. Amen. That was a lot. But you, you can even tell some of the poetic 
dynamic of the storytelling and why I wanted to capture that. But what we are at right now, what this is painting, is a tale of two kingdoms. We just got finished talking about the one kingdom in that Jerusalem was supposed to represent and failed in representing, and now we're halfway across the world, a thousand miles away in another kingdom run by an earthly king who was desperate to be remembered. Now, one thing to know about this Persian empire, and you saw it a little bit in the first verse where it talks about how this kingdom reigned from India to Ethiopia. This is a large stretch of territory. In fact, up until that point, it was the largest kingdom known to humanity. In verse 3 through 7, uh, our King Azuerus or Xerxes tries to, he does this ultimate flex. He consolidates his power and intimidates his challengers by doing this lavish display. Now, we're going to get into a little bit why he felt to do that, but you might think, you know, it's funny because, you know, some folks are like birthdays have become big things where people don't just celebrate their birthday. They're like, no, 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 we're going to turn up all week. Some of us really get frisky and say, it's my birthday month. But the king here outdoes all of you. He says, how about we take half the year, 180 days, six months to go wild. That's what he's on. And then after the 180 days, right, he says, all right, that was just for me and the close ones, the friends and my closest compadres. Now the last, now we're going to tack on another seven days, and that's going to be for the whole city. The wine flowing like the Nile. But the interesting thing about this is this was not about generosity. His point was to flex, to show his wealth. That's why he said, you see what I got here? Look at this. You see that? You know, and then next week we're going to put in, we're going to put in a gold pool right here. And then, and then check this out. You know, we're going to have a flat screen uh, painting and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, yo, it's going to be all that. And he's trying to show them and intimidate them because this was one thing that was prone to happen in Persia. Is, and this is how the Persians got taken over by, uh, took over the Babylonians because somebody in the court killed the Babylonian king. You see that in Daniel. King Belshazzar. And so part of this is to be like, yo, is to kind of keep everybody happy so, you know, I don't have to watch my back as much. But look at what happened. So, so then he not only just tries to flex his wealth, but also his wife. Look at her. Look how beautiful she is. There's a scholar who lived called Baka Khan. Not Shaka Khan, but <laughs> Baka Khan. And he said this, if you wish to know how civilized a culture is, look at how they treat its women. The king saw his wife as a tool to be used, not a partner to be consulted. And because of that, he brings her out, brings her out so that people can see her, look at her, see her beauty as a thing. And she's like, oh, I ain't playing that game. Now, the thing that's interesting is the crown that was on her head that he told her, he gave that crown to her. It was probably worth half a fortune. And this is why we have to be careful because the gifts and jewelry from an abuser are shiny designer bondages. Oh, yeah, they look nice. They're pretty. But then golden, 24-karat gold shackles 
are still shackles, though they might bling. We call this love bombing today. The action or practice of lavishing someone with attention or affection, especially in order to influence or manipulate them. And remember, this is a political context. And so what ends up happening is this happens with the church politically. Oh, I'm going to let you come into the White House. Look, I'll let you take pictures in front of officials. All you got to do is just co-sign on me and endorse me. Love bonds. We're going to move on. Do you see the contrast between the kingdoms here? The vision of the women in the Song of Solomon and what this is showing of the Persian version, which is perversion. <laughs> Amen. The king objectifies the queen by trying to command her to appear before his friends. And this is what earthly kingdoms look like then and now. Drunk, abusive. And too many women know what this is like to walk through the subway and get catcalls and whistles. One study asked women to record when they face being sexually objectified. And in that, in the, throughout a week, two-thirds of the women said that it had happened at least once and saw it happen to at least four other women throughout the week. And so there were these aspects of objectification that I just want to get into because it helps us to show the contrast in these two kingdoms and why it is so important for us to cling to another kingdom and not the one in which we're in. Because the reality is like air pollution, we can all breathe the stuff in so much that we forget that we're breathing in toxins. I'm indebted to Pastor Thibidi Anyabwele. He uh, has some great insights on this chapter, and I want to just kind of share them with you. The first way that the objectification look like is, is objectifying ignores a woman's humanity. The king's objectification ignored Vashti's Humanity. Jewish commentators say that when he said, make sure you wear the crown, that was all he was telling her to wear. Yeah, yeah, come on out. He was on something, it ain't no fun. And so she refuses and becomes the first heroine of the book herself. And see, some people have gotten this twisted over the time in terms of interpretation to say, well, she didn't submit. But not everything asked for in the name of submission is submission. Because if you break down the word submission, it means to come up under a mission. And the mission, if it's coming from God, means to glorify God by acknowledging you as an image bearer of him. So if somebody is telling you to do something that doesn't fit with that mission, then it's not submission, baby. It's not. Tragically... In these type of scenarios where this power dynamic exists, it can cause some women to objectify themselves. Can I talk about it for a second? See, 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 I grew up in 90s hip hop, right? Like, in a, like, I remember like Queen Latifah, right? Talking about, you know, UNITY, punch my man from Naughty by Nature in the face because he called her a B. Now we call ourselves that all the time. I remember seeing like people who could be in that space and be clothed fully. Not objects of someone's desire. 
But objectification ignores a woman's humanity. We're going to move on. Number two, objectification steals a woman's agency. So he's so mad that when, when Vashti says no, he don't even know what to do. He's like, um, I need a meeting. Bruh, what are we going to do? She ain't come. What the law say? Let's try to... And, and he could have de-escalated the situation if he had listened to the Song of Solomon series on conflict and had a conversation... But instead, he chose to escalate the situation, and then in the midst of that, takes away her responsibility, her, her choices, and her options. We don't see anything more from Vashti for the rest of the book. Third, objectification serves the abuser. He begins to attack her as public enemy number one. All of a sudden, because she didn't decide to shake what her mama gave her in front of everybody, now she's public enemy number one and everybody in the whole kingdom is going to be turned upside down. And part of the problem is who he was talking to. And this is why they gave the names, right? Like those long list of names I was struggling with. This is why it was important to read them. Because these are individuals, real people in history who gave terrible advice. Be careful who you listen to, especially about your relationships. Man, I'm trying to get through this thing. All right. But, but by serving the abuser, they put men at the center of the situation. And this is what it shows that the king, and this is, uh, this is so insightful in the writing. What it's showing in the situation is not just how bad the king is, but how weak and feckless he is. Because he can't even try it. Well, all of his power that he's supposed to have, he's so intimidated by this woman that he has to sick the law and a bunch of lawyers on her to get her to do to try to punish for something because he's afraid. So a lot of times these uh, power plays are just performances by insecure men who don't know what else to do, so they try to exercise power and control. Number four, objectification silences and banishes women. They ruined her reputation to silence her. We don't hear from her again. Number five, objectification makes women commodities. They say, well, let's just get rid of her and get someone better. Like she was a phone that you can just get a new upgrade on. And sadly, this is the mentality that a lot of people have. Let's just upgrade the relationship I'm in. As opposed to recognizing that this is somebody made in the image of God. And number six, the objectification is systemic. And it's a systemic injustice. Look at what happens. They say, send it to all the provinces, to all the languages. So it gets cross-cultural. It gets translated in multiple languages. And it gets established all the way from India to Ethiopia and all parts in between to establish this phony and fake patriarchy. And this is how the kingdoms of the world work. And, and when I say kingdoms of the world, oh yeah, I'm talking about here too. Can we talk about America for a second? Where it wasn't until the 1900s. We just celebrated 1921, right? Women could vote. Some women could vote. Not all women could vote. I remember my grandma, uh, she couldn't buy a house in Philadelphia because you couldn't buy one without a man's permission. This was in the 1950s. And so here's a really important point. America is not the church, y'all. It's not God's kingdom either. And, and, and the key thing here is that objectification doesn't remember God's word or his kingdom. In Genesis 1.27, we see, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
colon, male and female, he created them. And if someone is made in the image of God, that means they have all the dignity, worth, and significance of everybody else, not to be objectified. This is flesh on display. This is the the kingdom of man on display. But fortunately, there's another kingdom, y'all. This is a tale of two kingdoms, not just one. And what the author does is he sets up a contrast to say, now this is the world. This is what people celebrate as power of influence, of money. But guess what? There's something else that happens. And the very book is an example of the fact that this one kingdom that is being exalted here is actually fallen and broken. And the fact that the book was probably written in about um, early 400s, late 300s, which means that by the time the book is written, Xerxes has already been assassinated by one of his bodyguards. Think about that for a second. How that the readers interpret this whole story knowing that the very thing that he was trying to possess and demonstrate the power ultimately came to nothing and he was killed in his own kingdom. So if his his kingdom faded and his glory faded, then the question becomes, who is the king of glory? Somebody said the Lord God strong and mighty. In that book of Psalms, who is the king of glory? The Lord God mighty in battle. And this glory and this king comes out and steps in and he says, my foundations cannot be shaken. He's rich in love and intimacy and relationship with him doesn't need wine in order to turn you up. His mere presence in his spirit turns us up. This king of glory wants us to be like him, not to try to show him how much better than he is than we are. This one judges the nations. Oh, I love how the Psalms put in Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up against the rulers and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're saying, let's get away from the king of glory. Let's get away from this other kingdom and let's just do things our own way. Let's set up our own kingdoms and look at what it says, how God responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, And I will say, listen to this, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Isn't that interesting that the the conversation starts about the kingdoms of the world and it ends with a conversation about this son. And why is this son so important? Because what it's saying is they tried to break the bonds of our fellowship. They tried to break the cords. They tried to, to, to beat us down. But this son, after they beat him down, after they stretched him wide, after they crucified him, tasted death and shook it off. He shook it off, not like King Ahasuerus, who's still in the grave, but this king rose again. And this king tells us that there's something greater and better to ascribe to that is not based in this world or based on the kingdom in which we live. America ain't it, y'all, and praise God for that. There's a better kingdom. This is what Pastor Thabiti says. He says, when we confuse the church with this kingdom, we participate in a type of Christian nationalism that is idolatry and not Christian religion. This has been a plague in this country from the very beginning. But here's the point. God remembers you. In the spite of all of this, in the midst of all this, he remembers you and has established a better kingdom for you. And we see this in the son, that same son that Psalm 2 talks about, that son when we know who reveals himself is Jesus. How does Jesus, Jesus treat women? It's fascinating. 
These, 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 when the Pharisees came up to stone this woman so they can, for political purpose, for, to just to get Jesus, they weren't even concerned about the law. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. When they all dipped because they all knew they were guilty, he says, does nobody condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Well, what, what did it look like when, 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 when Jesus was, was honored by this woman who just wanted to sit at his feet and learn? He didn't shoo her away like the rabbis and Pharisees did. He said, come and learn from me. What does it look like? He invited them into participate financially in the ministry. Even his own mother, he honored even though he made her. <laughs> Some of us can't honor our parents and our mama even though they gave birth to us. and they, He made her, his mama and still honored her. Our dignity is not based on anything else but us being made in the image of God. And here's a beautiful thing. God's kingdom remembers women. And we're going to talk about this throughout this series. You're going to see what one author, Carolyn Custis James, refers to as the blessed alliance, that we need men and women working together to build up God's kingdom. It's not an either or. We need all of it in that Jesus is the king who crowns women queens. And his is not a shiny bondage. It doesn't come with strings attached. It actually just comes with his fellowship and his intimacy and becoming more like him. Jesus is the one who is banished for us. He said, no, no, don't bash you. Don't go nowhere. Let, I'll take on your shame and your punishment on me. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. And for some of us, because the culture tells you something completely different, you don't fit into the box that they say, this is what beauty is, this is what is valuable, this is what's significant, that might take some new work. But if we look at things the way God tells us to see ourselves, we see we're made in his image. And last time I checked, God is the bomb, y'all. So that means you are too. Brothers, we need to look at our sisters with renewed eyes. Sadly, objectification doesn't just stop in the church walls, but they come inside. We see this in some of the obsession about who's marriage material and who isn't. We see this in the way that people can be objectified even in the four walls of the church or stifled in their being able to share their gifts. We should advocate for God's kingdom and his justice both outside the church and inside. That's what it looks like to set up his kingdom. Well, this is what Esther 1 is telling us, that we can't possibly claim to be God's people and still be the kind of people that objectify and oppress women. Esther 1 is almost the exact opposite of everything we saw in Song of Solomon. Man's kingdom is so corrupt that it can not be reformed. It can only be transformed by God's power through the gospel. Here's the point, y'all. We have a kingdom. And at the cross is where we get to respond to that king and to choose. In second, uh, I mean, in First Peter chapter two, verse nine, it says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." And look at look at the rest. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Who called you out of darkness? And to the marvelous light. How do you get access into this kingdom? Well, the beautiful news is it's not by an invasion like King Xerxes. It's by invitation. Where is God's kingdom? It's in our hearts. Those who decide to submit to this king. Those who decide to follow this king. Those who decide to live by his edicts and his statutes. This is what the kingdom looks like for now. Oh, he's coming back. 
But for now, we get to choose to honor and bow before him. When we remember that God hasn't forgotten us, then we won't forget God's kingdom. You see, God has always been into, see, there's two types of chefs. When you go home, some of y'all are going to go to get something to eat at home. You're going to try to do the right budget thing and not eat out today. We'll see how that goes. But you got two different units to heat up food. There's the stove and there's the microwave. And some of us want microwave results, but we all know that when we order it, could you imagine calling a place for takeout and be like, yeah, we heat up all of our food. We cook all of our food in the microwave. You're like, no, thank you. Because we know that good food only comes that it takes time. Let that thing marinate. God's kingdom is worth the wait, but it takes time. You know why I know this is true? Because it takes time in my life to, be, to, to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. And so do not take God's patience for slackness. <laughs> they tried to erase Vashti, but here she is 2,450 years later. Like, hey, they're still talking about me. In God's providence, that palace drama is used to unfold a bigger story. This is not even just about King Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti. Because the vacancy left by that position, by that moment, is one that sets up an elevation from a group that were slaves, a group that were oppressed, to actually have one and Queen Esther rise up to be queen in the very place that her folks were oppressed. It's an incredible, astounding turnaround. God speaks through the brokenness to bring about a greater glory. And I saw this when I was in college. I struggled with these things. As I mentioned, I got saved uh, right in between my high school graduation year and my freshman year in college. And I ended up majoring in Africana studies. While I'm going to Bible study, I'm just trying to figure out life. And I'm seeing these two things, like, like, like those who are committed to justice and those who are committed to equity. And they just seem to like think that Christianity was actually a problem with everything in the world. And I was confused by that because I was actually motivated to do the right thing because of my faith in God. Because I'm like, if the king is real, then that means his kingdom is real. And all of that changed when I read the story of this one person. Reminds me a lot of Vashti. The book was called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet A. Jacobs. Like Queen Vashti, Jacobs was objectified in the worst ways. She was born around 1797 in Edenton, North Carolina, where my wife was born. She was physically abused, raped by a man who wanted to claim ownership over her. And she decided after she realized this was going to be the fate of her two children if she didn't do anything to plan an escape. But this is what she did, y'all. She was so desperate. She hid in an attic and had people think that she had gone to up north for seven years. She lived in an attic in which she could not even stand up all the way, causing significant physical challenges to her. But she eventually escaped rescued her two children and wrote the first narrative about slavery from a woman's perspective. And this is what she said 
about the time that gave her the strength and the courage to do this unthinkable thing of trying to flee. She said, we knelt down together with my child pressed to my heart and my other arm round the faithful, loving old friend I was about to leave forever. On no other occasion has it ever been my lot to listen to so fervent a supplication for mercy and protection. It thrilled through my heart and inspired me with trust in God. When I read her book and I saw the scripture leap through the page and the way that she had understood and, and, and the way that it motivated her to seek better and to seek more than what the kingdom of the world had told her she was worth, what it had told her that she could ever imagine, that's when it clicked for me. Oh, God, this is all about you. Your, your kingdom that you want to establish is not just about the sweet old by and by. It's not just about heaven. It's about your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. She knew the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And we get the invitation by faith to recognize that God is still telling that story through each and every one of our lives. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now. We thank you that you still tell this story in us and through us. Lord, we pray that you would help someone that's here say, you know what? I want to be part of this kingdom. And that you would help them to understand that just faith in Jesus is entrance into this kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would give someone listening the gift of faith. All other kingdoms will crumble, the kingdoms of men, but yours will remain. And allow this place, allow Bridge Church to be a place where women flourish. We pray against the objectification of women in our culture and for even who might objectify themselves. Lord, show us that we are a royal priesthood in a holy nation, a different kingdom, and we serve a different king. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.